The Center for Understanding and Conflict welcomes you to The Other Chair, a show that explores the dynamics of conflict. Why do we double down in our position? Together with our guests, we explore how the power of understanding one another can lead to better solutions. We will also share tips for managing your own mediation practice. I'm Jennifer Sullivan, and I'm a lawyer who wears a few different hats professionally. What really excites me is understanding how conflicts arise and how to help people navigate their way out of them. That's what Fuang Early and I will be talking about on the Other Chair podcast. Hi, I'm Fuang Ertley, and I'm a psychotherapist. I help families and couples understand, address, and heal relationship difficulties. That's why I'm excited to be here with Jennifer Sullivan on the other chair. So you landed in California, and were you planning to go back to the practice of law, or did you think you were done with that? No, I was done. There was, there was, there was, there was no... Well, California was way too interesting to be thinking about being a lawyer. My, that was all in the rear view mirror that was like, that's what I did. Um, and uh, I'll, but I, what will I do? I have no idea what I would do. But I was really interested in all the stuff that was happening in California and the human potential movement. Um, and so uh, I fell in with a guy named Harry Sloan, who was trained in, in, in psychosynthesis, uh, which was a, a uh, started by a guy named Roberto Asagioli, who was a contemporary of Freud and Jung's. Um, and uh, Harry did these um, uh, groups uh, at Esalen, and I went to one of those groups. Um, and um, the name of the group was You Don't Have to Suffer to Feel Good. Um, and it was five days of intensive uh, uh, looking at ourselves and interacting, and um, my mind was just completely uh, blown by, uh, by Harry. I mean, Harry said... At one point, as I was kind of weeping about my life and trying to figure out how to come to terms with, you know, what I was going to do, um, and uh, I was in love with Trish, um, but it was like it wasn't clear where it was going to happen with us, and uh, feeling guilty about um, my divorce. Uh, and Harry said, uh, "Well, you have a choice about where you can focus." What? <laughs> I have a choice about where I can focus, um, and uh, it was just completely was it, uh, my my mind exploded at that idea, um, and it, and it felt really true. Uh, so I did continued work with with Harry, um, and uh, went into training at this uh, psychosynthesis institute, which actually turned out to be a cult. Uh, so, and but really smart, terrific people. Amazing what they were doing. This is 1975, um, and uh, working really closely with Harry, and um, and that's where I met Jack. Uh, Jack was also, and and, and by that time, uh, as I was doing a lot of deep psychological work, what I realized was that the deeper I went, the more I realized I couldn't turn my back on the law, that that was also a part of me as I found my, my depth. And, uh, but I just didn't feel like there was a place for me um, in, in being a lawyer. 
Well, Jack had the same impulse. He was he was he had come from uh, working uh, against the death penalty and and AACP Legal Defense Fund, and with Tony Amsterdam, they uh, were responsible for the um, uh, death penalty being at least for some time held to be unconstitutional uh, and stopped for some long period of time. Anyhow, Jack came from that. We came together in, in this training, and uh, and then we had this kind of. I had this impulse, which was, well, why, why maybe, what maybe what we could do is is um, change the legal profession, so there'd be a place for me. Because <laughs> I, what I got, what I was really thinking, and of course you could think like that in the middle seventies. Um, you know that you could, we could actually change things. Change was so much in the air, um, and change things so there'd be a place for me. And it, and it, and, um, and and that just felt like it, it, the problem wasn't necessarily just me. It was the the profession, and maybe the, it, it, there needed to be some change. And Jack had the same idea, and he said, "Well, look, I agree with you, but." Because uh, he was also then teaching at Columbia Law School, he said, "Let's let's do law professors first. If we want to change law, we need to start with law professors because that's where it all starts." I love this, and and I have to say, I find it so striking because I didn't grow up. I mean, I, I was alive in the '70s, but I wasn't coming of age in the '70s, so I can't imagine it. But I did go to law school. And when you go to law school and you learn about the law, it's all based on precedent. And it's all based on, we, we do things this way because it's been done this way before. And so the idea that you would have not only that training, but a lifetime of growing up in this profession or, or adjacent to the profession, and then have this revolutionary kind of thought that you know you could change the profession and then to to, to plot together with Jack to think about how would you go about doing this methodically, starting with law professors. I find that just amazing. I, I have a hard time imagining your mindset at that point um, that, that enabled you to think in this way. Well, it, the mindset was um, anything goes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we'd found this. I, I wanted to comment on the setting for this revelation, right? You're yeah. probably sitting around in the hot baths, you know, <laughs> overlooking the ocean, high on some substance, right in the middle of Big Sur, which is uh, actually sacred land for the Esalen people. Yes. So there, the, and then the, the, the people you were hanging around with were the luminaries of the human potential movement, right? That's Virginia Satir going through, yes. Fritz Perls going through, and, That's just all these people who were daring to change the structures in which they came from, like changing psychology, changing education, changing how we view the body. It's, it's all these people were stewing in the same pot. And, and not only that at Esalen, but where I was living in Muir Beach became, they called it kind of Esalen North. So in, in our, in our, on, my, on the street where I lived was across the street was Sam Keene. Um, who wrote this book called Faces of the Enemy, and he was an editor of Psychology Today, and Will Schutz, uh, who was kind of a founding uh, uh, guy of having all this idea about joy and how people could be responsible for themselves. And, and, uh, and, and Joseph Campbell came to, uh, 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 to hang out with, with, with them and, 
and Ken Wilber. And um, so that it was an incredible time of ferment and really exciting people. Um, and, right. and, and, and one of the people that was really exciting who was at, at, at Esalen, uh, because when Jack and I, when we, when we got this idea, uh, Jack was able to get a, a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health for a half a million dollars to see if we could change law professors' attitudes. Um, and they were just interested. Uh, and, and there was a woman named Janet Letterman who was actually very close to Fritz Perls. Um, and uh, she was Fritz Perls without the meanness. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so although she had her own meanness, uh, she was very, you know, congruent, we thought, with, you know, uh, we learned so much from her and Harry and, and, um, and, and all these other people. Um, and meanwhile, the Psychosynthesis Institute um, was becoming a cult, and we didn't quite, as we were understanding that what that was going, what that was, we realized um, that uh, they tried to control us. <laughs> um, there was no controlling us, um, and so we actually ended up uh, bringing, using our legal skills, bringing the Psychosynthesis Institute down, um, and uh, and and, they, and it was that we, we they they become a graduate school, and and we became. Part of we kind of persecuted them with, with representing the students and and uh, realizing that they couldn't stand having truth out, and so the students wrote a letter to the other students, um, and um, uh, overnight the people in the institute, um, the leaders, just got into a, a caravan and left, <laughs> and, it, and it all disappeared like oh, that. Wow. Um, so you ran was, them out of town. Yeah, they and, and you know and it was right around the time Jim Jones and People's Temple and cults. There was a, and uh, and so all this business about brainwashing and um, and for us it was understanding that um, you know we we it was we were not going to be giving up our power um, to anybody from the outside and you know we were actually quite full of ourselves um, but we were able to gather together these great law professors who were really excited uh, about this idea the idea was uh, we, we called it actually the, the um, humanistic educational psychology is what we called it at the time um, and, uh, and so we had this law conference uh, does humanistic educational psychology have any relevance to the teaching of law? Um, and it turns out we had really exciting uh, people in the law professor world, and Howard Lesnick um, from Pennsylvania, and Paul Brest, who became the, the dean at Stanford Law School, and Charlie Halperin, who had started a, a center, um, a health center, mental health, in, in uh, Washington. Um, they all came for these weeks in the mountains, actually in Colorado, <laughs> um, Devil's Thumb Ranch. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, we brought Janet uh, and all the people that had been teaching us. We brought them to these two weeks, and we said, just do it. Um, and Janet, <laughs> she, we, we, when we let her loose, it was like, who knew what was going to happen? It was terribly scary stuff. Um, but what she did is she had, is my getting too much into this? 
Well, no, I, I, I want to know, but I, I don't even know what humanistic educational psychology is. And I'm wondering if all of these law professors who came, did they know or did you, how did you explain it? Yeah, well, we had, uh, wrote a paper uh, on it and then there was a conference where we uh, talked about it. It was all in very academic terms that we uh, de- described it. Um, uh, but there was this, you know, thing brewing, this incredible dissatisfaction. I mean, lawyers and law professors were really unhappy. Uh, a lot of them were, and actually still are, um, with what they were doing. And, um, and so it, it touched a nerve. Um, and we had all this money, and so we actually went around the country and interviewed everybody that wanted to come. Um, and uh, and so so Janet <laughs> had us get into um, gr- you know groups where uh, because it was all about learning. You know, we were so verbal, and we did everything. Thought it was everything was just you know heads. Every, all the exchange between people was, and Janet totally understood the body. And, um, and so she had us uh, get into, uh, took the words away and then gave everybody a pillow. And, um, and then uh, she said uh, the idea was to acquire as many pillows as you can. And we were in this room and we're these, uh, you know, fighting for pillows. And she said, you only have two words. One is no and the other is mine. <laughs> um, and, of course, it was property law, right, <laughs> um, that the whole basis. Uh, uh, and so we experienced with our bodies all these things that we were teaching in classrooms in a, in a visceral body level. Um, and, it, and it was actually the second year into that uh, that the evaluators, a guy named Amitai Etzioni, I guess he's a very famous evaluator from the Washington he, t- you know, he kind of took the measure of what was going on and, and he said, this is really interesting what you're doing. But what difference is this going to make? How is law going to be, how, you know, how are law students going to be any different? We can see these law professors are changing, but how are law students and the lawyers going to be any different? And what will this look like? And, um, and we said, we have no idea. <laughs> and he said, uh, mm-hmm. well, if you want to keep being funded, I mean, we had five years of funding, but this was just uh, a year or two into it, you better find out. And that's when we decided I'd hang out a shingle uh, as a kind of lab rat <laughs> uh, to see what happened when somebody with a kind of different attitude um, practiced law. And so uh, I. So you weren't you weren't just hanging out your shingle because you needed to make some money and you thought I'll use my law degree to do it. You were also interested in figuring out whether there was some different way to practice law using these ideas. Well, of course, I I, I didn't know if there would be any way to practice law using these ideas. Um, uh, and and uh, but I did need the money because we were we had a house and of course it cost nothing to live here then, um, but still. Um, I mean, I did charge thirty dollars an hour, and, uh, and and but I had as I was as I was doing the work with clients, I made two commitments. One was I wasn't ever going to do anything that didn't seem right again, and secondly, I was willing to to question uh, all the assumptions that I had about being a lawyer. 
those that was mm-hmm. it. Everything else was up for grabs, and so um, so I just hung, hung out a shingle with that. But of course, there was Jack, um, and there were these other people uh, around the country, uh, and sometimes I would um, you know record sessions with clients and send them to them. Uh, and or but no, almost always. Even though Jack and I, you know, we were on opposite sides of the country, but we talked every day. Um, and uh, and so, a mediation actually was just one experiment about you know this people that came to me and they said, "Can you help us do a divorce?" And of course, it was the one area I'd been a litigator, but I had almost no experience in family law. Um, so you know, I said, you know. Uh, well, I, I could be lawyer for one of you and the other could be your own lawyer and then I could help you negotiate something. And, and the, the wife turned to me and she said, well, I thought you were supposed to be different. I mean, you just sound like all the rest of them. Why can't you just be there for both of us, be in the middle um, and just help us find our way through this? And, and I was stunned. <laughs> Uh, when she said that, because I didn't realize uh, how wedded I was to my forms of being a lawyer. And, and so I said, you know what? You've said something that's really interesting. I need to think about it. Um, come back in a week. And um, so they did. They came back in a week. And I said, I think you're right. I think that there should be a way that as a, a lawyer, I can help you um, Find your way through all of this. Um, the only thing is, I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> um, so we'll have to figure this out. It's kind of like with my Oakwood students. We'll have to kind of figure this out together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's helpful, what's not so helpful. Um, and in, in those days, it was like, you know, the, people were so worried about the power lawyers had over people. Um, and I was really kind of dedicated to not to empowering people. I think that was that was the thing that really uh, touched me the most about uh, not having lawyers run people's lives. And so um, that was that was really deep in me at, at the time. And so um, we so we we did it. And I mean, you know, it was uh, using all the stuff I'd been learning from all the you know from Harry and Janet and all the people that I'd been learning from. And incorporating all of that um, in, into uh, working with them. I mean, I remember leading them in a guided fantasy about uh, being on a green field um, 20 years from then and, and, and with their kids and what they wanted that to look like. Um, and they found this kind of idyllic uh, relationship that they wanted to have and that kind of helped them find their way through um, the uh, their their conflict, which was really strong, um, and uh, you know, so it was, there was it was really brave people that came to me in the yeah, beginning yeah. because so very brave, Gary. It, I just love hearing these stories and 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 hearing the players that influenced you because I I really sense this strong hybridization of what was happening in psychology and spirituality at that time, infusing into your work. You were combining all these um, things that at that time were so popular, you know, the 
the pillows, right? That's that's Fritz Perls, you know, right. just acting right. out your pillows and right. uh, your your feelings and um, the sense of visualizing, right? And um, that's a lot of uh, solution focused uh, psychotherapy at the time. We're using those sort of of tools, and this this really profound belief of the person the the person who's coming to you isn't a one down position from you, but as your equal, and that they are the expert into themselves. That's a profoundly humanist sort of viewpoint. So I just love how you just took all these things that you lived and you breathed and and you cried over and all that somehow became translated, you know, through the filter of law and into the way you were working with um, the, in this new way with these new people you were working with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, uh, I never met him, but Carl Rogers, of course, had such a profound understanding of what it means to be an equal partner with the people you're trying to help. Um, that all, all the stuff that he wrote uh, was very profound um, and it was actually changing. Uh, we, we were very impacted by, by him. There were so many people in, in those days, but, but Rogers really, I thought, had captured the essence of the relationship between yeah. a professional and a client. Yes, and, and for the people who need the context for that, Rogers founded the client-centered movement. So prior to Rogers, you know, if you think of Freud, he's the expert and you're lying down. So there's the clear um, delineation between expert and recipient. Carl Rogers came into the room and he would take all that mystique away about being the expert and he would just profoundly listen to you and be with you and to regard you with such uh, respect and love. He brought love into the room. And so he had a very minimalist approach and he was famous for not saying much at all and just saying, mm-hmm, uh-huh. And through that process of being heard, people would come to their own uh, awakening or own conclusions or own solutions. Yeah, he really believed and this is the fundamental thing that that impacted us, uh, me as a mediator, that people actually had better answers to their lives than anybody from the outside ever could, and that and that is actually the most I think the most profound underlying principle of mediation, um, to really believe mm-hmm. that people and when you believe it as a professional, they experience that. Um, that belief, and so even if they don't believe in themselves, when they feel this person looking at them with this kind of uh, unconditional positive regard, is what he called it, um, it's, uh, or love, <laughs> um, that in fact uh, they started to discover that in fact they did have answers inside them, and those answers were better answers than anybody from the outside ever could have, and and that. That, that was the most profound insight to me that, that came out of the whole humanistic educational psychology uh, movement. So you had the opportunity to learn about how people, you know, could resolve their own problems or at least, you know, that people should be responsible for their or could be responsible for their own 
um, what's best for them in their own lives. I'm not saying this very well, but but what you were learning in California was was very different from what you'd learned in law school and how you know how to resolve disputes um, through the law. But you still, I, I'm still kind of fascinated by the fact that first of all, this friend of yours said this to you. I mean, usually when people come in for legal advice and you say, I'm a lawyer, I'll, I, I can represent one of you and somebody else will have to represent the other. The person would say, okay, that's how it's done. So I'm struck, first of all, that you had this friend who was like, that's not what we want. You know, she knew what she wanted and it wasn't that. <laughs> but I'm also struck by the fact that you still had, I mean, you, you're immersed in this world that you're, that you're learning about with, um, with, humanistic psycho, psych, what is it? Psycho, yes, that. Um, but, but you still were aware of this whole network of, of rules, you know, about, that govern what lawyers can and can't do. And so it, it was very brave for you to strike out and say, well, I'm going to try this different role that isn't contemplated by the, you know, rules of professional conduct. Well, I, it might have seemed brave, but, you know, I had so much support. I mean, there were these law professors. These were important people all over the country that kind of were touched by the same kind of bug. And, 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 there, and, and of course, we had the same idea about relationship between teacher and student as we did between lawyer and client. We were trying to level the playing field. So teachers were there in that kind of Rogerian stance. Uh, realizing that they're not going to operate in this heavy authoritarian way and, um, and that that was going to be much more effective uh, for their students to learn. So they were, uh, it, it all, it, so it didn't seem brave. It seemed like to me there was no other way to do it if I was going to be, you know, uh, my fledgling new law career was going to be anything. It would either be that or give up. <laughs> Um, because there was no going back. Um, and of course, you can imagine my father, how t- completely offended <laughs> he was by, by my new life. And, you know, he, um, he believed the only real lawyer is a trial lawyer. And so he was so profoundly disappointed um, that, and, and couldn't understand at all what I was doing and why I was doing it. And it just seemed all crazy to him. Um, and, uh, so, so it was, but I had rejected the East coast and I had rejected, um, authority. Um, and it was, it was the times when, you know, when it was, uh, Chicago convention 68. Um, I mean, there was so much ferment around the country and, uh, 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 yeah, the, the convention was '68, but now what was? This was the, the you know the aftermath in the '70s, so we're still feeling it. I mean, it was still those the, the times of um, we're really we're going to really change things. Now, when did uh, Lyndon Johnson quit? No, that was in the seven. Yeah, so we had that. You know, Johnson quit. The Vietnam War uh, uh, was wrong. <laughs> Um, ending uh, the major dispute my father and I had had uh, for all those years, <laughs> um, and uh, and then uh, what we thought was uh, America was f- fully changed and would never go back, um, and we were part of it, and 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 the institute, psychosynthesis institute, was part of it. I mean, there was so much potential, and what was amazing is how people gave up their power. Uh, so to this cult, 
it was really kind of uh, astounding to see our friends and people we respected almost like zombies. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of that as we're seeing some of these people in the, uh, on the far right now uh, speaking about uh, things that were, are not true at all and, and, and smart people believing things that are not true because they're told by people that, that they are true. And, that, and so, uh, so we've been through this um, and seeing, uh, you know, always thinking, gee, would these people uh, are, are how, could, how could it be that they would see things so differently? Um, and especially when they're being told things that, that have no basis in truth at all. And that's how it was. The relationship was so strong and the desire to, to please and authority, you know, respond to, yield to authority was so strong that um, they lost themselves. Yeah, and it sounds really contrary to what the Psychosynthesis Institute was teaching to begin with. Uh, yeah, as you know, one of my favorite stories about Jung is Jung said, I'd never be a Jungian. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and because they didn't like what was happening. And you could and, and Nassajoli, he was kind of an old man by then in, in, in Italy, but I think he was not aware at all uh, of, what, of how his, his really beautiful ideas were being used in this horrible way to kind of subjugate people and have them lose their um, own sense of themselves. Well, so going back to when, um, when you started trying to mediate um, with this one couple, and then I understand there was an, an investigation that happened soon yes. after that. Yeah. Um, so you weren't the only, you had some friends to call on to talk to the bar folks about why this made sense to, to have this new role be recognized. Can you talk about that? So, I mean, you know, lawyers in their early days, when they would hear about me and clients would, 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 would tell them, they, they, would, they were profoundly upset and they said, you know, uh, they complained to the bar, what you're doing is illegal, you can't do that. You can't represent two people at the same time with conflicting interests. Um, and so it's unethical, it's illegal, and um, we're going to investigate. And I remember having some conversation with, with, uh, with one of them saying, you know, I actually think um, that what I'm doing is, makes a lot of sense. And so if there's a rule that says I can't do this, <laughs> I have to change the rule. Um, <laughs> and by the way, this doesn't look so good for the Bar Association trying to, trying to protect its own. Um, and it looks like, you know, so please, um, uh, you know, investigate me and we'll make it public. I think people will really be interested in hearing about what you're doing. <laughs> um, and they went away uh, a- after that because um, it, was, it was too political, politically hot for them to kind of go after mm-hmm. me. Um, and... Uh, and, and but there were there was a huge anti feeling anti me, um, and you know and I think I was probably in circles you know ridiculed and but it didn't matter I wasn't part of the club, so I wasn't even hearing all the bad things they were saying about me just occasionally filtered through clients. My lawyer said, "Don't come to Gary Friedman," um, and so that's why we're here because <laughs> I figured if my lawyer said don't come. Um, that there must be something 
that you're doing this interesting. You know, I would get things like that, you know, because people were were, were wanting to be empowered and and they and they were sensitive to uh, lawyer domination and 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 that was changing. There was a lot of stuff being written about that. And, um, and and so that's that's so important to understand, Gary, because often we. When we think about bucking the structure, right, there's, there's always a David and Goliath sort of picture where, you know, the structure, the bar association is Goliath and here you are, little David. But what you're saying is the contrary, is that the tenor of the time, the zeitgeist of the times was on your side. There was such a swelling, a, a feeling among people around you that things weren't working that you, that gave you the confidence to say to the bar association that, okay, let's, let's expose this. Let's talk to the people and see what happens. Well, and of course, we can't leave out the fact that I was in Marin County. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> Marin County, is, right, right, yeah. So that there was a lot of feeling like that in, in Marin County, a lot of mm-hmm. human potential types here. I mean, the Marin County was just filled with therapists and all these people that were tuned into all this stuff. So it, 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 right. it, it that was another reason it didn't seem so brave uh, because there was. And was this also where like uh, the second Woodstock happened? You know, in Mill Valley where you live and. You know, so there. Not only was it a location, but like a gathering of people who well, of believe course, in these ideas. There was the Grateful Dead. Um, the, the, there, you know, there were all these people um, that were uh, attracted coming here. Sweetwater, um, an incredible place mm-hmm. for you know anybody who was anybody coming uh, into town in the music world uh, in those days would, would would want to stop at Sweetwater, and so. There was tremendous uh, swelling, and and of course it it wasn't just law; it was the other professions, and, you know. So so um, everything else, yeah. Yes, yes. Thank you for listening to our very first episode of the Other Chair. Fuang and I really loved talking to Gary about his personal journey from being a bulldog litigator to finding a new way to practice law one that eventually became known as mediation. There are so many interesting influences that informed this evolution of his and his eventual focus on what Gary calls the peculiar power of understanding, which is its ability, even when people disagree, to expand the possibilities available to them for a resolution to their dispute. We hope you will join us next time as we continue this rich conversation. In the meanwhile, if you want to learn more about the Center for Understanding in Conflict, please visit our website at understandingconflict.org. You can also find us on Facebook or LinkedIn at Understanding in Conflict or on Twitter at Inside Conflict. Thank you and see you next time.